We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, and this is going to be part two, because two weeks ago we started it. It has 58 verses, and I didn't want to rush through it. So we're going to finish the second half of it today. So we started the resurrection chapter, and the Apostle Paul explained, this is important, why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a non-negotiable tenet of Christianity. And I went on further to say that I don't care if they have a cross, I don't care if they have a steeple, I don't care if they have a few Bibles in the building. If they deny the resurrection, it is not Christian. I got up a little fired up uh, two Sundays ago, and sometimes I get passionate about things that I really believe, but listen, what's not to get excited about, folks? Seriously. Religious people every year visit the tombs of their religious leaders because their bones are in there. They have a shrine, it's entombed, and they, they, they make pilgrimages to it, and they say prayers, right? We can't do that. Why? Because the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. Yeah, they probably have a gate around it, and you could see the empty tomb, but it's an empty tomb. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He's our Savior. He said he would. That separates him from everyone else in history. All right? He's the Son of God. What else is exciting about that? Well, Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible says that he's the first fruits of the resurrection. We talked about the Jewish harvest and the first fruits, and they would gather them up and show them and offer them to the Lord, and that would be the consecration of the rest of the harvest. So because Jesus rose from the dead, we have hope in the afterlife, right? We die, our spirit goes to be with the Lord, our essence, we spend time with him, and then one day he's going to resurrect our bodies. Okay, even more exciting if you're still not convinced. For thousands of years, men and women have been living and dying and being put in graves, right? Their bodies. But the Bible says, it tells us, and we're going to see this, that there's one generation that's going to be on the earth, and it's good, quite possibly our generation, that will never taste death. If the Lord comes home for his people today, it's just like walking from one room into another, right? In a better room, in a better dimension. So, I mean, how do you not get fired up about that? That is exciting. Right? The hope of the resurrection, the hope even of the rapture, knowing that it's going to happen, it could possibly happen in our lifetime. You see, there's churches out there that are very solemn. They have good doctrine, but they're very somber about the word. They don't show a lot of emotions. And then there's churches that are emotional about everything, but they don't even know what they're emotional about because it's not based on Scripture. What I believe is that we read the Bible and because of God's timeless truth, we do get excited over the promises he's made for us, over the hope that's given, over the fact that even if you have a difficult life in a difficult situation, man, it's going to be great. The Apostle Paul's been dead for, well, 1,900 years, give or take, a few, and uh, he was on the earth for what? Maybe 60 years? He's been where he's been for the last 1,900 years, having a good old time. So even all the struggles that the Apostle Paul talks about are nothing compared to the weight of, e of eternity and that glory in eternity. So we're going to jump in. 1 Corinthians 15. I am going to start with verse 20, even though we covered 20 through 28, because I want to just refresh your memories and give you a little reference point. I'm not going to commentary on 20 through 28, but that's where we're going to start. The Apostle Paul says this, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep or euphemistic for have died. For since by man, meaning Adam, came death, by man, meaning Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. 
but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ at his second coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. You see order in the Bible. You see that the Bible is very clear. It's not like some religious books that are fuzzy and they make these vague uh, promises or ideas or prophecies that you can pretty much fit anything into that puzzle piece. The Bible is very clear. God is clear about his work. There is an order to things. He's not a chaotic God. And we see that. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, this is where we start today. What will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, when or why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If, in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, hey, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And that's in quotations. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Same thing there. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Remember, he's speaking to a church. And in every church, there's going to be different types of folks. There's going to be different beliefs. Uh, and the bigger the church, the more uh, different belief systems you may have, even under the same roof. So there were some that didn't believe that the resurrection was going to occur. The false preachers, the false teachers came in, the itinerant philosophers, and denied the resurrection. It didn't sit well with Greek culture. So some of the Christians may have felt pressured, as Christians do today, right? When you go out to the world after you leave church, Monday morning and you go to church, and somebody makes fun of you for your faith, Back then, some of them were pressured to start believing this stuff. So maybe they could kind of gel good with the church and gel with the rest of society. So here's your background, your context. Now, this is interesting. They talk about baptism for the dead. I'm not going to take a lot of time on that. I know that those who really know the Bible have debated this for a long time. Um, many don't care because it's just the one, one or two lines in the scripture. And the rule is, if you find something very obscure in Scripture and that's the only place you find it, don't make a doctrine out of it. That's where you get into dangerous waters, and there's some that do. So here, this is what we have. And I'll just explain a little bit of it, a little bit of it that maybe we can understand the, the term. What is he talking about? There are some that baptize for the dead. Now, one way to look at this is proxy baptism. And some, actually the Mormons practice pop, uh, proxy baptism. In other words, I'm a new convert in a year. I don't get to get baptized. You know, I'm planning to do it this summer, and I die. So what happens is my relatives get together, and one of them pretends to be me and gets baptized in my stead. It's called proxy baptism. There's no scriptural basis to this. And there's really no common sense to it. If you look at the thief on the cross, Jesus was on the cross, and he spoke to the person being crucified next to him. Today you will be with me in paradise. That man got saved at the last hour of his life, the parable of the day laborers, remember? Did anybody, did Jesus say, okay, listen, we're, we're all hanging here, we're all going to die, he's going to die too. 
Will somebody, John, will you do me a favor when we die? Can you stand in for this thief so you can do like a proxy baptism thing because he didn't get a chance to be baptized? The Bible doesn't say if you don't get baptized, you don't have salvation. So and understand one last thing. Paul's not condoning it. As a matter of fact, he's just stating a fact. He says they, and then he says us. They, we, I, they. So he makes the, the differentiation between what they're doing and what he's doing. I look at it this way. Baptism is, among many other things, a symbol of the resurrection. So the, the point is, why would you continue in any practice that focuses on the afterlife if there is no afterlife? All right? And maybe that's the argument that he's making. But the Apostle Paul says this, We are in constant jeopardy. I die daily. I have fought with the beasts of Ephesus. The Apostle Paul risked his life for the sake of the gospel. Right? And if there was no resurrection, why did he go through all this? Now, the word that we use here, or that's used in the Greek for fighting the beasts, literally in the Greek, there's a literal and a figurative interpretation in the Greek, and both are applicable. Number one, the word means literally a beast fighter. Now, in Rome, they had the Colosseum. If the city was wealthy enough, they had an amphitheater. Uh, I follow a lot of archaeology, a lot of history. You can see the pictures and the videos of you know, some of the amphitheaters that still even stand. But there was a grand amphitheater uh, at Ephesus the Apostle Paul used even to preach the gospel. However, the walls were high, and there were certain chambers in there, and there was certain evidence that led us to believe that you know, they were gladiatorial fights. Men would get together and put on the helmets and the shields and the swords, and the crowds loved it. It was a big moneymaker. Now, we might say, what a decadent society. But we don't do the same thing today. Americans like blood and guts. They like the movies. And, you know, what's becoming popular now is that UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship, where they don't, they don't stop the fight until a guy's completely passed out or he taps out. His blood could be all over the ring, and people love it. They eat it up. You know, humans have that macabre sense of, of uh, entertainment. But literally, okay, he didn't literally fight the beasts uh, but there were those who were furious men, and that's the figurative interpretation. So the Apostle Paul had a, a lot of fights for his life, some with men who were trying to kill him, they laid hands on him, they tried to stone him, and then also the Apostle Paul fought off spiritual attacks. So he truly did fight off the beasts at Ephesus, and Ephesus was a hard uh, road for him. But the Bible says that anyone who truly serves the Lord is going to have opposition, period from without, and the book of Acts makes it very clear, from within, right? And sometimes it's better to have it from without because you know who your enemy is. <laughs> but Satan will use those from the inside. He'll use members of your own family. He'll use other believers against you. If you are serving the Lord, you will have opposition. It's just, it's just a fact. There won't be any insulation, right? And that's why I also pray especially, I pray for folks in the prayer list, but I also pray especially for ministry marriages and ministry families because those are the ones that Satan's really going to go after. But the bottom line is this, if there's no resurrection and there's no afterlife, okay, which was an argument that some made in Corinth, then what's the sense in being in ministry? Because ministry is, has an afterlife objective. That's all that ministry is. 
And you may go to a church and they talk about politics and they'll talk about the newest book that somebody wrote and there's really not a whole lot of Bible and there's not a whole lot of afterlife discussion, but that's dysfunction, that's an aberration. True ministry focuses on an afterlife objective. So the logic that Paul is using is who, what we would say today is who needs the aggravation? You know, who would do all this? Who would go through all these spiritual attacks if there was no afterlife to be focused on? And this is what he says, verse 32. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Right? And I would agree with that. If there is no afterlife and we're just animals and nothing separates us from the brute beasts in the field, then heck, feed your flesh. If the flesh is the only reality, then why deny the flesh? But the point is, there is an afterlife. There is a resurrection. And even as believers, we will be held accountable for the things we do, especially because we are believers. Right? So eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We saw this in the scripture. If you've gone through the a book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says this. If you look at the book of Isaiah, he also says this. Uh, so it's not something that original that the Apostle Paul came up with, but you can make many applications for it. Right? However, Something interesting about this is that, and I, I did touch on this, is even as believers. See, the compromising or the carnal Christian, and there was many in Corinth, and there's still many today, they will live like there's no tomorrow. They will live like this. There will be no discerning difference between the compromising Christian and his unsaved neighbor. Nothing. No difference. So why would anybody want to be a Christian? You see, they live as though there is no judgment. They live as though they won't stand before the Lord and have to give an account for the things that they've done. And that's a shame. Verse 33, he says, evil company corrupts good morals. Okay, this is also in quotations. This comes from the Greek poet Menander, which if you lived in that genre, in the, in the Hellenistic society, you would understand who Menander was. So he's taking that quote from him. He says, evil company corrupts good morals. And he's going to make a point here. Now, this is true. I'm going to make three applications here. This is true in the natural realm. You know, you hang around with bad people enough, they'll start to influence you. I read a few books on, I find it fascinating, law enforcement, whether police or ATF agent, you know, the good guys, right? They go undercover to, the, you know, to become mobsters or uh, these outlaw biker gangs, and they try to infiltrate them so they can catch these guys and, and you know, blow the place up, basically, and uh, you know, have these guys get arrested. But the books that I've read, the longer the law enforcement officers stay undercover, they start to forget who they are. The lines become blurry with who's the bad guy and who's the good guy. Some of them have been honest enough to say, hey, this is a good life. You know, I'm pretty much the king. I could do whatever I want. Uh, everything comes easy to me. And they start to have a crisis of identity. So you put, this is true, evil company will corrupt good morals. Another application, it's a biblical principle. And the Apostle Paul here, for this particular uh, aspect, is saying that those who deny the resurrection, that's evil company. And if you hang around these folks long enough, you're going to become tainted. You're going to have a problem. Third application, evil company corrupts good morals. Now, it would be a shame if we as believers didn't make a personal application. You see, everything in the Bible has a personal application for me personally and for you personally. So we need to make that application. Who do we surround ourselves with? Think about that for a moment. Who are my friends? Do I have edifying relationships or do I just get together with the Christians that I like to because they'll engage in gossip so I feel comfortable doing it too. So we can kind of do it together and have our little parties and then smile and play the holy person when we go to church, right? 
Do we influence others in our lives or do they influence us? Do we influence others for good or do we allow them to influence for the bad? I love chemistry. You would have these equations on both sides of the, the equivalent sides or the arrows, like these equilibrium equations. And sometimes it would go one way and sometimes it would go another. And those are the things that we have to constantly check our lives and, and do a little introspective look and see where we are, who we are, what type of influence do we have, and what type of people do we hang around with? Because the bottom line says that evil company corrupts good morals. And you may say to me, Pastor Joe, I would never discount the resurrection. Well, I've known people that over the years, if they hang around with the wrong crowd, their theology starts to change slowly. It's a slow poison. It starts to poison your theology. Your emotions and your activities start to change the way you think about who God is and what the Word says. And you start to not look at it maybe as sacred scripture anymore. It's an interesting point. Verse 34, the end to this uh, block, the Apostle Paul says, But awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Again, he's speaking to the church. He's saying basically, come to your senses and don't be ignorant of God any longer. Christians who live as if there's no resurrection, he's saying, should be ashamed of themselves. The Apostle Paul already presented the arguments for the resurrection. He, he presented the arguments against the resurrection, and he struck them down. And he basically, he says, you know, why do I do these things? Why do, we, why do I fight with the beasts of Ephesus? Why do I devote my life to something that gives me so much grief at times and so much opposition? And the answer is because we know the truth. And believers, you need to understand the truth because it's going to affect your whole behavior system, your influence system. It's going to be, affect everything in your life. So awake to righteousness and stop sinning. Stop following this garbage because it's poisonous. He says, I speak this to your shame. Some, I don't know, I just felt like looking up the word shame every once in a while. I'll just look up the Greek words and see what they, if I could pull something out of there that has a deeper, richer meaning. And the Greek word for shame is entropy. Now, if you are in the science field, you'll recognize that word. That's where we get the English word entropy, right? Everything goes from a state of order to a state of disorder. It's the second law of thermodynamics in the, in the physical sciences. And it basically says that in a closed system, and some argue that the universe is an open system or a closed system, but the bottom line is the trend in the universe is everything is going from a state of order to disaster, to disorder, to chaos. However, if you add energy into that closed system, the law goes on to say, you can actually reverse the entropy effect. And I see God as that reversal. Lazarus, come forth. Four days rotting, his sister said, there's going to be a stink. Don't open that tomb. My brother's been rotten for four days. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus came forth with the grave cloths. He, he, somebody helped him to undo him, and he was fine. That shouldn't happen because it defies the natural laws. But the Lord interjected energy into that system to reverse the laws of entropy. But he says this, speak this to your shame those of you who don't believe in the resurrection. I speak this to your chaos, to your disorder, to your self-delusion. What a shame. You have no foundation, right? If you don't, you know, I, every once in a while you can have a conversation with even a minister who doesn't believe in the resurrection or the basic tenets of Christianity, and as you start showing them scripture, they get confused and they don't want to talk to you anymore because their minds are made up. But they, have, they don't have a leg to stand on because they're only picking and choosing what they want to read out of the Bible. But I speak this to your chaos. You have no, no foundation. That type of person 
who furthers myth truths about God and his word is going to stand on a shaky foundation. He's going to be the person that builds his house on the sand. And all it takes is a few storms and that sand shifts and the foundation comes down and there goes the house of cards. Um, interesting situation. We, about nine years ago, we took in a, a young lady who got pregnant and she came from a, a very rigid Muslim family and literally she feared for her life. So we ended up taking her into our home and, uh, you know, she had a so-called Christian friend that was counseling her to terminate the baby. And what we decided to do was we didn't order her to do anything. We didn't charge her anything. We let her stay. She, she started saving up money, was able to build a life for herself and eventually move out. But we, we didn't make her do anything. We shared the Lord with her. We took her to church. And uh, my wife was this far out with our son. And she went head-to-head -head with this so-called Christian woman. You know, m my wife, I don't care what position she's in, if you start trampling on God and his word, she'll come after you. She said, you call yourself a Christian, and they had it out. The woman never spoke to my wife anymore. But the bottom line is, the girl that we had living with us, she ended up keeping the baby. And every so often, she comes back from where she lives, out of state, and she brings the child with her. And she's just so happy that the influence was there to, keep her, to help her to keep that baby. And what a, what a difference it made in this young girl's life. But there are going to be those out there that are going to twist the scripture. They're going to say, well, you know, you've got to survive. You've got to do what you've got to do. And basically what they're doing is they're speaking out of emotion. They're speaking out of the here and now. They're speaking about what they can see and what's tangible. But they're not speaking out of faith. And the Bible says in Hebrews that if you don't have faith, you cannot please God. You can do all the good works you, you want. You could pray all you want. But Hebrews tells us that it's impossible to please God without faith. Period. You have to have faith. Verse 35. Now I'm going to add a little bit through this because this gets a little... Um, maybe it's a little... For me, even when I read it, I had to read it a few times for it to really gel and, and I could pick it apart. But he says this, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Paul's response, foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fish, another of birds, and you can see that. We have skin, the, the fish have scales, uh, you know, their musculature system is different, birds have feathers, you know, animals have fur and all that other kind of stuff. But there are also celestial bodies or heavenly bodies and terrestrial bodies or earthly bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, physical. The last Adam, or Jesus, became a life-giving spirit as the Son of God. However, the spiritual is not first but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. It's God's order there. The first man was of the earth, made of the dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. 
As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption, or decay inherit perfection, in a sense. The first verse, it's, a, like a, he's, it's like a question and answer. Someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what body do they come? And Paul says, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. We saw this in Athens, when, in the book of Acts, when Paul went through Athens. And again, the Greeks, the Hellenistic culture, they were all about philosophy, intelligence, the libraries. You know, it was their god that they worshipped the altar at was education, right? And if I can't see it, you know, I'm not so sure that it's there. So when the Apostle Paul was witnessing to the Greeks in Athens, he brought up the resurrection, and they laughed at him. They scoffed. They mocked. Some listened, but a lot of them gave him a hard time. So this is the same type of argument here. And let me just read to you one verse in John 12:24, talking about the seed that falls and dies before it can have life again. Jesus says this, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. And you can see this in any crop. You got the seed, you got the plant, and the seed is such an insignificant part of that crop, especially depending on how big it is. When it falls to the ground, it dies. It starts to decay. The covering starts to come apart. It's covered with dirt. It gets soggy because of the water. But what's happening? It's a germination process, right? If you follow botany or horticulture, it has to die before it can now plant its roots, germinate, spread its roots, start, the shoot starts to come up, and then it becomes a beautiful crop out of one seed that died. Well, of course, he's going to make the analogy with us and, and the body. You know, this, this, this model is not bad. It served me for about 42 years. However, the Bible says that the next model I'm going to get is going to be awesome. I won't be tired anymore. I won't be grumpy. I won't be irritable. You know, I won't hurt. The new model is just going to probably take me through different dimensions and be able to, you know, Jesus was able to walk through doors and still be able to eat. Amazing. We don't know exactly what God is going to do with our bodies, but the fact is we're going to have new bodies because these bodies are attached to death and decay. They die. So this isn't going to be what we're going to get through eternity. The Bible even says that nobody can stand before God's presence and see his full glory and live. We, we just, we'd just be toast. You know, however it would happen, we wouldn't survive that. Plus, there's also a sin element that's attached to us. So, just like Jesus, the Apostle Paul, everybody saw farms and crops and wheat and grains. And, you know, Paul and Jesus and Peter and John, they used simple things that the average person of the average intelligence and intellect could look at and go, oh, okay, I understand that, right? So, it's the same thing with the body. Um, there's a different glory of the sun. The sun is beautiful, isn't it? It's amazing. The helium and the, and the uh, nuclear reactions that happen in the center and, 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 the, and the heat that it gives off, and it doesn't burn itself out right away. It should be burnt out by now. The sun is amazing. But the moon is kind of amazing too. And on a beautiful night, the moon casts a beautiful kind of bluish hue because it reflects the light of the sun. But the sun has its glory, the moon has its glory, and different stars in the universe have their glory. So, you know, there's a big difference between... Not, not for nothing, folks, but this is, the body is neat. 
follow the articulation of the hand, you know, and how the fingers can move in different directions and the carpals and how they bend and all the ligaments that are attached and the nerves that run through the, you know what I'm saying? It's pretty fantastic. The carpal tunnel and it gives the, innervates the nerves of the fingers no matter what you do. It works pretty darn good. This is a glorious body, right? Even in, in, in its decaying form. But the, the Bible says there's going to be another glory. Oh, wait till you see the new, the new duds I'm going to hook you up with. This is going to be really sharp, right? And, and again, I can't sit here and pretend to explain it, but our bodies are going to be different. And I'm just excited because I trust him. It's going to be really neat. Okay. Now, the other thing to understand, too, is then here's the sad part, part of it. The Bible is clear. There is a hell. For those who reject God and his way of salvation, there is a hell. And for somebody to be tormented in hell forever, their bodies are going to be changed, too. Interesting thought. Uh, so they can withstand the punishment uh, forever. That, that's pretty hard. That is something that should get under our skin and not question God's goodness, because he is good. Okay, we'll understand it all in the end. But that should get under our skin to help us not to live a life that's self-serving, folks. You know, application, we don't live a life that's self-serving. We live a life that's devoted to the Lord. Jesus said 2,000 years ago, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. It's no different 2,000 years later. In a post-Christian Europe, and really heading there really fast, a post-Christian United States of America. Okay? I'm telling you, once they start persecuting Christians here, a lot of the fishers are going to come off the bumper stickers because they're not going to want to deal with the persecution. It's true. It's true. You want to see who's a real Christian and who's not? Go to, a, go to a country. I'm blown away. I love the missions field. I love talking to people who are over there. In Iran, like, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, they said, oh, there are maybe 10,000 Christians in Iran. Iran, Ahmadinejad, kill them. The report and the word on the street is with all the, you know, they are able to communicate with each other with the house and the underground churches. There are close to a million Christians in Iran. That is mind-boggling. They kill you if you convert to Christianity. You're dead, or they put you in prison and torture you. But the church is growing. But there are no nominal Christians there because they know what it means to stand up and say to the government, I'm a believer. They know what it means. So pray for the persecuted church. So this should really cause an impetus for us to just be excited and be excited to how God can use me to witness to another person, for my life to overflow and influence another person. And eventually, even if I'm shy, one day they'll ask me, what is it different about you? Where everybody here is complaining about work and they hate the boss, you don't seem to get involved in that. How come? And there's your open door, folks. You're different than everybody else, right? Okay. So we see the contrast, you know, um, the way the body is sown, you know, in corruption and decay and natural uh, because of sin and rebellion and what it's raised in because of Christ's sacrifice. It's raised in a spiritual body. It's raised in incorruption. It's raised eternally, right? And I have to tell you, I mean, not that I, I, I'm sure everyone here has been to some type of wake or funeral. Death is ugly. And being a, a patrolman or a, a road police officer for 18 years, I've had my share of dead bodies. I've seen them every which way, missing body parts, and they don't look like how they dress them up really nice in the casket. But I'll tell you what, no matter how good of a job they do, you know that's not your mother. You know that's not your grandparent. This, that you look at them, and, and I've looked at it, and they go, that's not my relative. It's not. They don't look, there's something missing. It's because their spirit is gone. It's like shedding a snake skin. The body is there, but that's not them. They went somewhere, right? They went somewhere. 
And I have to tell you this, folks, if you are here and you're going to settle for the 70 or 80 or 90 years on this earth and that's all you care about and you don't care about what happens when you die, I pity you. I feel sorry for you. 70, 80, 90 years are paltry compared to eternity. Not paltry, but paltry and maybe paltry too. <laughs> but the bottom line is we focus too much on this life as if we're going to be here forever. Every once in a while I go to sleep and I say, what if I don't wake up tomorrow? <laughs> I'll be with Jesus. But you know what? I'll feel bad because my family will have to struggle without me around. But I'm not worried about what's going to happen to me. We focus too much on this life as if we're going to be here forever. There's something about the human psyche. Even when we go to a funeral, we go in, we're sad, we cry, we say hello, we hug, we do all that stuff. We leave the funeral home and then what we do is we take it, that thought, and compartmentalize it. We put it in a filing cabinet, close it, lock it, put a blanket over it. We don't want to see it anymore until the next funeral. That's what we do. We compartmentalize our lives, folks. We're not going to be here forever. And as youth flees, what do we do? We dye our hair, we, we go to the gym, we, we put on, you know, especially for our face, we put on um, you know, a moisturizer and start to make, you know, the, the youthful part is fleeing. So we're trying to catch up to it and be presentable. I look at the actors and actresses, they look so beautiful when they take their pictures and the cameras are shuddering. You know, they use special oils and creams and stuff that we probably couldn't afford to put on themselves to make them look that way. And then when you go to the supermarket and you look at one of them stupid tabloids and it talks about the stars, men and women, who they catch on the beach and they don't know that the, the paparazzi are there, uh, or they take their picture, candid shots without makeup and all that stuff, men and women, they don't look any better than us, folks. There is no fountain of youth. You can study telomerase and the, the anti-aging process and the DNA and we're going to do this and we're going to save you through stem cells. There is no fountain of youth. Get that through our heads, all right? I say again, if you're here today and you're just focusing on the here and now, the next five, the next ten years, it goes fast. That's a big gamble, folks. If I were you, I wouldn't take that gamble. But the cool part is, here's the cool part. Listen, I don't come up here every Sunday to give you bad news. The cool part is, it's your choice. It's your choice. You could take your lot, roll the dice, spin the wheel, put your gamble into everything that happens today. I'm going to get a big raise. I'm going to get myself a new boat. I'm going to get this, and I'm going to be happy. Knock yourself out, all right? But the bottom line is, we get to make the choice. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for man and woman to die once and then the judgment. And there's no do-overs. No do-overs, folks. We don't know how we're going to take our last breath and we don't know when it's going to be. Make your decision now for eternity. Prepare yourself. Verse 45. He tells us the difference between the first Adam and the last Adam, of course, which is Christ. Why is he the last Adam? because he's the one who was the only one who could open the door to eternity and eternal life, starting with the resurrection. So he's considered the last Adam, the Adam of a new order, of new beginnings, okay? Adam was of the body, Christ is of the spirit. We could bear the image of the earthly, refuse to be born again, and die in that state and be judged, and that's not a good thing. Or we can bear the image of the physical, and then come to Christ, trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, be born again, and now be born of the Spirit. So yes, we're still physical, but our spirit has been revived. It's been revitalized, right? It's, it's awakened in us. 
and remain with God and our loved ones who have chosen Christ for eternity. And the, and the question is why, and the answer is, he says this in the last verse, 50, uh, for this block. He says, because flesh and blood will not enter the kingdom of heaven. None of us in this state can knock on God's door in heaven, doot, 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 ding, dong, you know, who is it? It's me. You're not getting into heaven. It just doesn't work. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And I got to laugh because Jesus was talking to the religious leaders, the Sadducees, who said, you know, Jesus, they always try to trick him, you know? And he never answered the question that, he, that they asked because he knew better. And they said, Jesus, you know, a woman married a guy and then he died. So the guy's brother marries her and then he dies. And then this guy mar uh, dies and then the other brother marries her and eventually there's like seven of them. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? First of all, if I was the younger brother and that was the track record, I wouldn't marry her. <laughs> I'd know what my fate is. Well, he didn't say that. Basically, he says to them, they, so they thought they caught him because they didn't really believe in the whole afterlife thing, which was weird. They were teachers of, of religion. And he says, you're ignorant. He basically told them, you don't even understand spiritual things. You're not even answer, asking a proper question. It's, heaven is not like here. You guys don't get it. I'll give you a few other teachings. Uh, Islam's, you know, you go into a crowded place and blow yourself up for the cause of Allah. You will be promised the next moment you wake up 70 virgins on 70 beds and 70 mansions. Again, it's earthly thinking. Not for nothing, but when you stand, I believe this, when you stand in the presence of the Almighty God and see Him for what He is, there's nothing that's going to distract you. That's an earthly, uh, it's, an, it's a terrestrial teaching. Um, even uh, Mormonism, I've studied a lot about this. Uh, when you die, if you're a good Mormon, you can have your own planet, your own universe, you'll become a god. The, let's see, the expression is, as man is, God once was, as God is, man can become. I don't want to be my own god. Satan wanted to be his own god, and you saw what happened to Satan. It's very clear in the scripture. A friend of mine has a bumper sticker, he's a pastor. It says, there is only one god, quit applying for his position. <laughs> I mean, really, that is not... What happens is you have men who were heads of religions making teachings based on what they see on the earth. They, they didn't get any spiritual revelation. Jesus tells them, you, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know the things of, of the Spirit. But the bottom line is, there'll be big changes coming. 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There'll be changes. We'll be different. We'll be able to stand in his presence, right? The one last thing that I want to leave you with is another lie that's out there. We did this in the, uh, if you didn't get the Revelation study, you can get it on the archives on the website. The Revelation study was a lot of fun. And really what we learned is we're not going to be floating around as disembodied spirits, as like a schmoo that just kind of goes up to the clouds and we get a harp and we play a harp for eternity. That's not what Revelation teaches. It's not what the scripture teaches. There's a sense of well-being. There's a sense of joy. There's a sense of eating. There's a sense of abilities, you know, and um, eating probably was put in there for us Italian people and make us happy. But it's going to be really neat, right? Be ready. The Lord can come at any time. Many aren't ready. They're doing the things of the world they don't want to be ready. Here's the fear, folks, and I've heard it. 
It's not like some people don't think this. The fear is when we die and go to heaven, it's going to be a drag. It's going to be boring. That's the lie. That's from Satan. So I might as well have as much fun I can have now. I might as well be as successful as I could possibly be, try out all the different drugs I can try out, have sex, do all this stuff, because when I die, it's going to be a real royal drag for the rest of eternity. That is a lie. That is a lie. You're being told something. You're being asked to do something that's from the enemy, from Satan himself. Heaven is going to be an awesome time. And whatever you think it could be that's great, it's going to be infinitely, exponentially better. Okay, so understand that. Verse 51. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. And sleep was used euphemistically in context for those who have died. It was a nice way of saying that they died. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then, we shall be, then it shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. He says, I tell you a mystery. A mystery in the scripture was, and usually you would see this in the New Testament, it was something that God formally kept a mystery. It was a secret. It was an enigma. It was a puzzle, Right? But now it's known. Now it's been revealed because it's God's timing that it gets revealed for our edification. First Peter, I love it. First Peter, the Apostle Peter in his first work, work writes, you know, the, the, the prophets would get a message from God and they would just write it on the scrolls and they would look at it not even knowing what it meant, but they were being obedient. It wasn't until really the New Testament that a lot of these prophecies were starting to be revealed and even fulfilled today. And First Peter also says, not only the prophets were curious about what they were writing, but it says that things that angels desired to look into. Even the angels didn't have the full scoop yet. And I could just imagine them rejoicing every time something happened, right? Jesus rose from the dead. They were like, oh. So it's really cool. But the bottom line is we will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And that, what that word means is it means literally a jerk or a twitch, right? Or in a fraction of a second, we will be changed. And that's what we understand as the rapture which is transliterated from the Latin, uh, so some don't like that word. We can use the word Greek for harpazo. It means a violent snatching away. The Lord just removes us from the earth, boom, in the twinkling of an eye, and in that moment we are changed. And let me read to you a little bit more detail in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's a few books forward. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting with verse 13. The Apostle Paul says this. See, the Thessalonians were lied to also. Some said, oh, Jesus has come back to second coming, and they thought they missed the boat. Oh, we're still here. Jesus came back. What, what does this mean for us? Paul said, listen, let me explain to you how it's going to happen. Verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Again, it's that order thing. God loves order. This is what's going to happen first. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So he gives some detail about 
uh, you know, the, the, the changing of the bodies and the, those who uh, rise from the dead who have gone, died before us, not like a zombie movie where they're going to be all in tattered clothes and rotting, but raised in, incorruptible beautifully with a new body, with a glory, and we'd be like, whoa, and then we'll be caught up together with them to be with the Lord in the air. So that's pretty neat. To me, it's good. I like that because um, death loses its grip. It loses its power. It loses its sting. So many people fear death. So many people um, look at shows that, you know, the faces of death came out years ago, and they're just captivated by how people die. They're either terrified of it or they're captivated by it. It has a sting. It has a power. But the Lord is going to take that sting and power out of death because there won't be any death anymore. And for me, I like it because I don't have to do any more funerals. Even if it's a positive message, a believer has died and went to be with the Lord, it's still sad. So I'm looking forward to that day where there's no more funerals. And it says, for the, um, sorry, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the strength of sin that uh, Paul is talking about is the law. Why is the strength of sin the law? Because the law pointed out the painful reason why we die. Because we look at the law and we realize we can't keep the law. I can't keep the law, you can't keep the law, and it's like a chain. If one of the links is broken, the integrity of that chain is, uh, chain is lost. So we die and we're separated, at least uh, some of us, uh, from our loved ones, but, but, but Christ. But because of Christ, we have eternal life. He has broken the power of death, broken the power of sin, and even broken the power of the law to hold us into a place where we can't change. Verse 57, two more verses. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I guess this is the point where we can close our Bibles. But don't miss this. Because this is the crescendo, this is the zenith, this is the apex. Because it affects our behavior now, these last two verses. You take it all together and understand this. Ask yourself as I go through each one of these words, number one, is that me, what Pastor Joe is speaking about? And if that's not me, what do I have to do to get that to be me because that's what I want? So let's go through it. Number one, steadfast. I looked in the Greek, I looked in Webster's, I really want to understand this word. It means to be firm fixed, established, not fickle or wavering. Too much fickleness in the body of Christ. You are to be steadfast. We are to be steadfast. It is a positive action. I have my eyes fixed on Christ and I know what the Lord has for me and it, no one is going to move me or deter me from that path. Second quality, immovable. This is a negative action. There was a positive action. Now here's a negative action. Unyielding, unemotional, impassive, can't be changed. I will resist every force that tries to push me in the wrong direction. I will dig my cleats in, I will put up my guard, and you will not push me backwards. Three, always abounding. And here's the result. Plentiful, existing in large amounts, teeming with the work of the Lord. This is the fruit. Only through obedience can I bear such fruit in my life. Are you looking for purpose? Are you looking for purpose? Who's not looking for purpose? That book, <laughs> those two books, the Purpose Driven Life and the Purpose Driven Church, whoever came up with the marketing strategy for that was a genius, and they made millions. Why? Because there's millions of people, billions of people walking down, walking around aimlessly on this planet because they have no purpose. And sadly enough, 
believers who haven't realized the purpose that God has given them also walk around aimlessly, so they buy that book because they want to know how they can find purpose in their lives. Everyone is looking for purpose. You want to find purpose? Be on the winning team. That's where you find purpose. Be the one, be the part of the body of Christ that exemplifies your gifts and makes a difference in this rotting world. The Bible says that we're to be salt and light. We're supposed to preserve the, the rotting, fleshy, maggot-filled meat, that's the world, from completely decaying. That's what salt does. We are to be salt and light. So if you're looking for purpose, be on the winning team. Be in prayer. Be in the Word. Get involved. Fellowship. And He will reveal His purposes for you. This is applicable to every single one of you in this church. Do you think, well, I come from a bad background. Well, you don't know the sins that I committed in my, in my life. Paul was a murderer of several people and gave his consent, especially starting with Stephen for his death. Are you worse than that? There is no, no sin that you could have committed that God hasn't forgiven and Christ hasn't died for. I don't care if you're disabled. I don't care if you Think lowly of yourself. You have low self-esteem. God can use you. He used the Apostle Paul to pretty much transform the Roman world, and Rome pretty much imploded on itself largely because of the Christian influence in the empire. One man. You could be the next Apostle Paul, or Pauline, or Paulette, however the case may be. (laughs) right? Because of the resurrection, we can have victory in Christ. We can have victory in our lives. The last... uh, verses which we're going to end on he says knowing that your labor is not in vain let me tell you something let me encourage you before it happens before you come to me and say i'm trying so hard and i'm just so discouraged i've been there i still get there at times we all get there it's normal we're human so before you come to me let me give you the answer and meditate on this number one in this life you will not be noticed for your work. In this life, you will not get a pat on the back for your achievements. In this life, you will not be appreciated and oftentimes you won't be compensated by others. And oftentimes, if you're doing ministry, the same thing applies to you. But know this, we are pleasing to the Lord when we labor for him and we work to further his goal on the earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen, sister. So, that's happening. So all we're doing is we're as ambassadors. We're, we're rolling out the red carpet for him. That's what we do as Christians. We need to look to please God first and not please man because when we look to please man, we will always be disappointed. There'll be, there will come a time where you may say, oh, Joe, you're a great pastor. I am going to let you down. I'm going to forget to do something. I'm going to forget something. And you're going to look at me and be discouraged. Don't focus on me because I'm going to, eventually I'm going to do it to you if I haven't already done it to some of you. He's the one that you need to focus on. The Bible says this, and this is what I'm going to end on. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good. Why does he say that? Because we do grow grow weary while doing good. And God knows to scratch where we itch. Let us not grow weary in doing good while doing good. For in due season, patience, in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for-